Hello and welcome to the Renatus podcast. I'm Greg Dilger and in this episode I'm joined by Paddy Blaney, the chair of the Aircraft Leasing and Finance Programme in UCD Smurfit, what is probably best known for his time as CEO of GPA, the legendary Irish aircraft leasing company founded by Tony Ryan, who as we know also founded a little airline called Ryanair. I appreciate the GPA story has been told before. There even have been a couple of books written on it. But I'm looking forward to hearing Paddy's version of it after all these years. I think you're in for a treat. Paddy, just remind us about life before GPA. Well, there was a life before GPA. When I left college, I did economics in Trinity for my sins. And I then went to KPMG, then called Stokes Kennedy Crowley. I worked for um, a group which included Lawrence Crowley as one of the partners, mostly in the auditing world. I ended up, oddly enough, having um, most of... Lawrence Crowley then was kind of Mr. Receiver. So when you met Lawrence Crowley, it was usual when you were carting chickens or something up in County Leitrim mm. and you were, uh, you'd were you gone bankrupt. I looked after most of um, Lawrence Crowley's non-receivership clients. That was my role in life. And in 1980, I emigrated to the US to work for KPMG in then called Pete Morick Mitchell mm. in Chicago. I worked there for two years. My father and my wife's father both got ill during that course okay. of time. And we decided rather than staying in Chicago, we'd come back. Okay. And so I came back and I got a, got my job back in KPMG pretty instantaneously. Sorry, would you have stayed in the US, do you think, only for that? Hard to know. You know, okay. hard to know. In, uh, uh, probably, probably would have. I was enjoying life in Chicago and I was being well paid for mm. what I was doing. Anyways, came back to Ireland um, in 1982, 83, end of 82, beginning of 83. Uh, started again with KPMG. Started working with Lawrence Crowley more directly this time, a more senior level in KPMG. And one of our clients was Tony Ryan and GPA, then the fledgling aircraft leasing business. And GPA had tried to go public, I think, in 1981. It was very much more a trading enterprise in those days than a leasing company Mm. because the early days of aircraft leasing were a little bit of leasing, a lot of trading. Mm. And so the income, while it was a very profitable business, was not very predictable. And And not not suitable for a public company. Yeah, it didn't work for Mm. a public company. But it caused a degree of fallout between KPMG and Tony. And Tony decided he was going to change auditing firms to anybody else other than KPMG. Mm-hmm. And so Lawrence and myself drove down at six o'clock one morning to meet Tony and Kilboy to try and, and retain the relationships. Lawrence had a great relationship with uh, Tony. And four hours and several tirades of abuse later, <laughs> we succeeded in our task. And Tony Ryan said, well, I don't want XYZ looking after my audit. I want him. And so I got involved in sort of as the audit manager within KPMG okay. looking after um, GPA. And it quickly became a full-time job, effectively working for KPMG, but looking after mm. my one client. I'd say you, you may not have realized it at the time, but I'd say Lawrence definitely did realize where this was taking you. Yeah, no, I, and I think, um, you know, obviously got to the point where I was senior enough to, you know, the next stage in KPMG was joining the partnership. And I think Tony preempted it by one day inviting me for a coffee into his office and offering me less money than I was then being paid mm to work with a guy who I knew from sailing called Colin Barrington in a a joint venture between GPA and Midland Bank, now part of HSBC. Mm. And that business had about $200 million, $250 million worth of assets, and it was all financed by Section 84 loans. And so I agreed to join the company, and over the winter of 83-84, joined GPA, having wound down all of my other client relationships in KPMG, arrived in GPA, started looking after this interesting portfolio of assets. 
And then Richie Ryan, who was the Minister for Finance, came along on the budget on the 11th or 12th of January, me having joined on the 2nd, eliminated Section 84 as a financing mechanism. And so my first year's job in GPA was to unwind all the transactions that made Mm. up the 250 million. I tell you, I learned a lot from (laughs) unwinding transactions, but I thought to myself, God, I've made a real mistake here. I've left a perfectly Mm. wonderful career in Dublin in KPMG, joined this bunch of so-and-sos down Mm. in Mm. Shannon, and and within a flash, Mm. my career had disappeared in a puff of smoke, (laughs) Richie Ryan's, you know, decisions in the budget. Anyway, after that year, I then moved into the mainstream part of GPA in the finance department. And most of my role was looking at the sort of non-conventional financing. So, mm-hmm. you know, special purpose financing vehicles, financing transactions in difficult jurisdictions, borrowing money from export credit agencies. Mm-hmm. I wasn't looking at the mainstream, you know, corporate debt facility type stuff. And so as time went by, it went in that direction rather than staying in the finance department and working with John Tierney, who was then the CFO. So kept going down that line. Eventually, about, I suppose, late 1980s, GPA had grown to the point now where we had a couple of hundred employees. Mm-hmm. We had a division that's, that leased Boeing aircraft, a division that leased McDonnell Douglas aircraft, a division that leased Airbus aircraft, a division that leased Fokker aircraft. Mm-hmm. And one thing I noticed was that, you know, they, they went out hawking their products. And I remember one famous weekend, the team came back and they'd all signed a letter of intent with the same airline for the same number of aircraft. <laughs> so they were clearly competing with nobody else but themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just one of those bizarre things that happens in an organization that where you, you put everything into a silo. Mm. And so we reorganized the company into regions rather than products. Mm. And so if you were in charge of Europe, you know, EMEA, mm. you had to place Boeing, McDonnell Douglas, Airbus and Fokker mm. aircraft. And that was a much more efficient way of doing it. So did you get any help in doing that or did you have to work that out yourselves? Yeah, no, I, like um, we, we used to use an advisory group called Boston Consulting. Mm. And Tony had a great relationship with the head of Boston Consulting, a very amiable, you know, American from Texas who was very good at saying simple things very clearly. And so he came along and he helped us. And, and I think with Boston Consulting's imprimatur, it helped that yeah. it got implemented yeah. more quickly. So that's how I got into GPA. Basically, Tony made an offer that I should have refused, mm-hmm. but I loved the cut and thrust. I was not cut out to be a full-time advisor. Mm-hmm. I think my natural predisposition was to be doing it rather than advising on it. And so I found the opportunity interesting and challenging and Tony, you know, was happy to let me go. Did you have much engagement with Tony directly at that in that first period? At the very beginning of all of this, you know, but but Tony, um, he went through phases in his life where he was very engaged with GPA Mm. and then phases where he let us get on with it. Mm. And then either something would happen to his personal life yeah. or the company's existence that would bring him back in. Mm. He was still very much hands-on, mm. executive, non-executive chairman, yeah. but he'd be less engaged sometimes okay. and more engaged other times, just depended on events and circumstances yeah. in the company and his own life. I remember when I worked in NCB, there was a share price for, unquoted obviously, a sort of private market. There was a sort of a price knocking around for if you wanted to buy GPA shares off the market. At what point did that become available to staff and to other people? Okay, well, I think the company obviously was founded in the middle 1970s. Mm -hmm. It benefited from 0% corporation tax for a limited period of time. And Tony used that mechanism to make all of the senior guys in the company a shareholder of the company and any dividends that you received were effectively tax-free. 
Yeah. So it was a very yeah. efficient form of remuneration. So he could presumably pay you less in your core. Absolutely. And, uh, <laughs> you know, Tony's MO was to offer you less than the market rate as a salary. Yes. And to, yeah. you know, if you delivered, you got well compensation okay. over and above that through the various share and dividend and profit sharing schemes. And, and were you happy? Was it fair? Because it's very hard for those things to be fair as in who's getting access to the shares and who's not. Well, you know, when you start a small company, you probably give away too much of the equity mm. to the original, you know, management yeah, team. Yeah. And so it becomes less fair over time. But I think the combination of Ireland or Shannon-based companies losing their tax benefit and, you know, a change in the size of the company, the scale mm. of the company meant that all had to be, you know, the, the shares got issued, the people had them, and then a new executive compensation scheme was built okay. in the background. Okay. And that was much more professionally okay. organized okay. and set up. Okay. So people were well paid, <clears throat> but they had um, very high standards to perform to. Mm. And, you know, you got a, a very modest bonus if you didn't mm. perform. You got a very good bonus if mm. you performed and it delivered. Did senior staff at that stage have to, to use the phrase, pony up for any shares at that time? Or were they just simply given them as part of their remuneration? Did they actually have to pay no, they had to. They had to pony up for the shares. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And totally <clears throat> presumably, knowing him, I know a reasonable amount about him at this stage, but he, he'd be pretty unhappy if you weren't interested in taking the shares, I assume. Absolutely. You know, it was your way of essentially getting signed up to the company. Yeah. And so that's the way it operated. Okay, so Paddy, you've been there how many years there now? You know, you, you came I, in. I joined in 83, 84, Four. and the IPO was 1993, 90. so 10 years. 10 years. 10 okay. Years. Tell me about the lead-in to the IPO, really the story, because this is really where the company, there was huge growth, very exciting times for the company and indeed for, for Ireland watching this entrepreneurial company, entrepreneurial guy, but it turned sort of on a sixpence around this. So you might just give us a bit of colour in the run into the IPO, what was going on and what happened to cause the huge problems that happened later. Yeah, uh, you know, it's it's a pretty complex story and probably one that needs several massive tomes to put yeah. it in, in yeah. perspective. But basically the company, so we'd ordered $13 billion worth of aircraft and we were getting into this sort of idea of two a week forever. Yeah. Sorry, one and, quick one. Did you have a reference point or a peer company that you modelled yourselves on in any shape or form? Yeah, there was a company called ILFC, International Lease Finance Corporation, okay. run by Steve Hazy, very successful guy, still based in the US. ILFC has now disappeared, but he started a new company about 10 years ago, mm. and he's grown that company very successfully since. But anyway, Steve Hazy was our main competitor, mm. US-based, which has several advantages from a financing point of view. And anyway, in the lead up to our IPO He'd ordered piles of aircraft just like we had. Yep. He'd realized that he needed some significant powerhouse behind his capital structure. And his choice was to become a subsidiary wholly owned of AIG. We went down the IPO route. So did suppose, you give full consideration to the other? I don't know no. because I wasn't part okay. of the senior management okay. team that made those decisions at okay. that time. But the IPO route, route was you know, where we were going. And so I think a number of things all happened in parallel. We had financing facilities that were coming to a maturity in the two or three years, you know, following the expected date of our IPO. So the IPO was to be in 1992. We had a whole lot of major financing facilities coming to a maturity date in 1995, 1996. And so the pressure to raise the capital to be able mm -hmm. to refinance those uh, facilities was quite intense. You know, quite intense. And I suppose we did a couple of things. Um, first of all, there was several public rows. One particular one that I wasn't really ever involved in, but just read what everybody else read in the paper, which was Warburg's 
we decided we weren't going to use Wargrins, we were going to, going to use Schroeder's. But in the course of exiting our Schroeder's or our Warburg's relationship, somebody said the wrong thing at the wrong place in the wrong time. And Mr. Then Warburg decided he didn't like the way his company was being treated. And mm-hmm. he wrote a piece on aircraft leasing that was Scathing. why you should not have been ever invested in the business in the first place. And by the way, GPA is coming up in the public offering. Okay. Don't touch it. Okay. Pretty influential really crowd as well. Very unhelpful. Very yeah. unhelpful. And then I think we had another choice, and that was to be used Goldman Sachs as our global underwriter or to be used Nomura as our global underwriter. And then in the couple of years before that, we had been 40% owned by major Japanese financial institutions. And there was a natural desire on their part to work with Nomura mm-hmm. to, you know, as the lead yep. lead in the whole thing. I just think Nomura weren't quite where they needed to be at the time. Mm-hmm. And again, we got Nomura and Goldman Sachs fighting over the GPA business and ultimately we picked the wrong horse. Yeah. Could they have done it jointly? Probably not at that okay. stage because I think I think they were, you know, they were brothers nothing. in arms. It was okay. one way or the other. Yeah. In order to keep the business ticking along with $13 billion worth of aircraft coming down the pipeline, the company, Antonio Ryan and the senior management, made the choice to essentially have a management team that was not involved in the day-to-day business of yep. the, actually running the IPO. And I think that also was a mistake. Because they weren't sensitive to the market requirements Mm -hmm. and they weren't hearing what the market was saying. Mm -hmm. And so we picked the wrong guide leader offering. We were heading into a recession. We had ordered large numbers of aircraft. We had a big refinancing Mm -hmm. mountain coming at us. And we I think we had the wrong team at that Mm -hmm. time for what we needed to do Mm -hmm. to get Mm -hmm. through that particular window. And so then we also tried to go public simultaneously in North America, Japan and Mm -hmm. on the London Stock Exchange. Mm -hmm. And the requirements to meet all of those three different but quite connected uh, capital markets Mm -hmm. gave us a very short window and a very significant Mm -hmm. number of rules which constrained what Mm -hmm. we could do. We couldn't downsize the offering. Once we decided what the price was, we couldn't change the pricing. You know, we couldn't take all the money from North America and leave Japan and the UK out of it. We had to allocate certain amounts to every one of these markets. And so all of those things contributed to to the IPO not succeeding. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you it was a very big shock because people like me in the middle management, we'd bought shares in anticipation of those shares continuing their, you know, the rise. And suddenly we realized that those shares were potentially worth far less than we'd paid for them. And most people had borrowed money to Mm. purchase those shares. So that was summer 1992. At what point, like, has it taken you quite a while to get real clarity on what happened? Or were you very clear soon after? Was it vague as to what happened there? Whose fault was it? Have the years made you think differently on it? Oh, yeah. No, I, like, I think you, you obviously, you know, you can reflect on things. It doesn't, it's not a, there's no blinding flash of clarity. Mm. It comes out of understanding what, mm. and hearing other people's perspective of what happened from their perspective. So I'm kind of giving you, I suppose, my own education yeah. guess plus the inputs of others. Yeah. So here we are in September 1992. I am probably then the most senior executive in the company. Mm-hmm. My focus is solely on the day-to-day business, you know, placing aeroplanes, transitioning planes from one customer to another, taking delivery of planes Mm -hmm. from manufacturers and as far ahead of their delivery Mm -hmm. as possible, placing them in new customers. That was my job. And I could see my job just beginning to run into post-IPO problems. Mm -hmm. And so every time he went to a customer, he'd say, but, you know, can you assure me you're going to be around in six months? Your Mm -hmm. your public offering failed. You have a debt balloon. I'm reading all these bad articles Mm -hmm. about you. You know, so suddenly the business began to grind slowly, inexorably to a halt. Mm -hmm. At the same time, our efforts to restructure the business 
outside of bankruptcy seemed to be going in the wrong direction. Mm. I had a lot of dealings with the manufacturers because I'm the guy who was taking delivery of the planes as they came off the production line. Mm -hmm. But yet the same guys who I was dealing with was telling me that, you know, we're worried about you guys surviving beyond, you know, September of next year. So, you know. We can't. And and, and the message we're getting mm -hmm. from the team that's restructuring the company is the wrong message. You know, this is a temporary blip, you know, a bit like the Conservative Party today. This is a temporary blip. We'll be back in power mm -hmm. in no time yeah. and all the problems will be under the carpet. We needed to address the problems, mm -hmm. and we were not addressing the problems. And so over the Easter weekend in 1993, myself and two other colleagues at my level within the company, okay. I was the guy who ran the sort of leasing business, GPA leasing. There was another guy who ran, in my position, ran the capital side of the business, mm -hmm. GPA Capital. As the third guy who kind of, he was Mr. Operations Guru, and we collectively wrote a note, which we sent to the board. We delivered it, hand-delivered to every one of the directors on Good Friday, 1993, a day which lives long in my memory. In including Tony Ryan. Including Tony Ryan. Every director got a copy of this with no warning in advance okay. of what was coming. There was a board meeting to look at the restructuring and how we were going the following Tuesday or Wednesday. So we knew they needed time to read it and Nigel Lawson got it and all of the great and the good directors who we had. And it, clearly there was a lot of discussion over the weekend by the board. The board meeting took place on Wednesday. We heard nothing. Deathly silence from senior management. I think I drove past Tony on one occasion on Saturday or Sunday and I got a, a glaring look out the window, but that's as far as it went. I, I thought you would have got worse than that. I thought he would no, have got no, out no, of the no. car. He didn't direct his chauffeur to <laughs> run no. me off the road, no. no. Anyways, the net result was on Wednesday, I was summoned into Tony Ryan's office and he didn't like the way we had done it. Mm -hmm. That was his primary complaint. Okay. He didn't like the way we'd done it and he said we should have come to him first. But then having spent 25 minutes tearing strips off me. He said, I think you're right. I think we aren't going in the right direction. Mm -hmm. But you guys seem to know what the right direction is. So you're now the chief operating officer of GPA Group PLC. You've just been appointed. And every week I'm going to be on your case to find out where we're going, why we're going, and why this makes sense. Okay. So immediately got leapfrogged over quite a few of the existing senior management and was given the task. And the, the thing I did that was different from what was happening before is I got all of the company involved in the project. Okay. The next day's meeting, sat them all down and said, this is what we're going to do yeah. in very broad brush terms. Yeah. We need to find out what we can do, who we can do it with, what concessions are available, but we need to be realistic in what it is we're going to mm. ask for. Because if we are not realistic in what we ask for, we're not going to get any support. I, sorry, I could see possibilities for lots of personal relationships being damaged here where, where you've there's been a Blaney kind of land grab or it could be perceived as that by your colleagues. How did that, that all go down with people who were senior to you? Well, the really interesting thing was the next, we had these famous Monday morning meetings. Mm -hmm. The next Monday morning meeting, on the previous Friday, Tony called me up and said, I want you to chair the meeting. I'll be at it, but I want you to chair the meeting. So over the course of the weekend, all the people that had encouraged us to send in this note signed by three people to the board we sat down over the weekend and we came up with a, a very, very broad outline plan of action with, you know, 10, 12, 15 of us. And then we presented that and said, this is the start of putting the plan and the evolution together. And we're all going to have to work as part of a team to do this restructuring. Mm -hmm. It's not a team of people within the company. It's everybody's responsibility. Yeah. And so we turned it into that job was everybody's job. Okay, and, you got buy-in. You got yes, buy-in. Yes, and okay. buy-in from everybody. And so it was obvious to the senior management who were at that meeting who did not like the outcome and or how it had gone mm -hmm. that 
that actually we had buy-in. Mm. We had everybody on the, our side. We said, this is what we need to do. Um, the marketing guys, the lawyers, the, the finance guys, mm. all of them bought into this. Mm. And so that gave us the momentum. And then we just quietly pushed at all the bits that we needed to push at until, we, until the, the vague outlines of a restructuring mm. plan began to emerge. And, and that's how we got restructured, essentially. Now, there was a few, there's a few hiatuses in the middle of that. We realized we had to give the lenders confidence that the company was going to continue to exist and that they weren't going to have 350 airplanes, which was a huge part of the leased fleet, come back on the market at one go because we'd, we'd failed in our right. efforts. And so we began to look at how we'd achieve that. And among the advice, advices we got was to look at perhaps getting GE, who had been a shareholder and were still a shareholder in GPA, to essentially manage, take over the management of our aircraft assets. And so what people think happened in 1993 mm. is that GE took over GPA. It didn't. GPA was still the same company. Yeah. GE came along and we signed a management contract for GE to take over the management of our aircraft assets. And under transfer of undertaking arrangements, we transferred all the employees associated with that task to a newly formed company okay. called GCAS. We outsourced the management mm. so that the lenders now knew that even if GPA failed, the assets were going to be managed by a AAA rated okay. uh, major company. And so in some respects, that meant that GPA as a you know headline name in the aircraft leasing business kind of disappeared because all of okay. the assets were being managed by this new entity called mm. GCAS. But actually... GPA owned all those assets. Okay. GPA had all the liabilities associated with them. And the only connection between GCAS and GPA was they had an option to buy the company for a fixed amount, which lasted for another five years, up to 1998. I just assumed there was an ownership transfer to G- no, GE there. No Wrong. ownership transfer. And in fact, later, in the, later on, we actually bought the option back from GE in a kind of very interesting transaction, which I'll get to in due course. So in essence, the restructuring, one part of the restructuring was the assets being managed by GCAS. Mm. Another part of the restructuring was we had to get agreement from our secured lenders that allowed us to use the cash being generated by the company, which is pretty substantial, to pay our unsecured lenders off ahead of schedule, notwithstanding the fact that they had security over specific assets and they probably stood slightly higher up the the chain of command in the event of things going wrong. But we did all that and we reduced significantly the order book with the manufacturers. So the first thing I did was I got involved with the manufacturers and we realistically shrunk the order book. We had airplanes under construction. We were going to take delivery of all of those aircraft. Mm-hmm. So we had $2.5 billion worth of commitments that we had to honor. But beyond the aircraft that we had in the pipeline or for which parts had been ordered, mm-hmm. we effectively canceled every other one of the $13 billion worth of aircraft. So the capital required to do the reduction was much reduced. Okay. So that gave us time to look at the 1995 and 1996 uh, refinancing hurdles. So 1993, October 1993, put in place basically a period of time in which to find a solution to the refinancing. And during that period, we had done a number of securitization transactions. And again, just securitization is effectively when you, you sell an asset and its associated cash flows and you raise money on the strength only of that asset and its cash flows. Okay. So it's, it's not like a loan, but it's, it's non-recourse to the company. And it's proved to be a pretty significant way of financing aircraft Mm. because long leases, attractive capital assets, you know, can be moved between Mm. customers, uh, strong cash flows associated Mm. with it, good credit profile, diverse 
yeah. all the right things for a, you know, a good financing vehicle. So we did one of those just before the IPO failed in 1992, so-called Alps 92 Aircraft mm-hmm. Lease Portfolio Securitization. And then we did one just after the IPO, once after the restructuring in 1993. And then we went off for sort of a, 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 you know, what are we going to do about this mountain? And we hired a very good team of people from um, Morgan Stanley, including one guy called Carl Essig and another guy called Scott Bach, who I remain very friendly with to this day. And they said, well, you've done two great securitizations. Why don't we securitize the entire fleet? And it's like a light bulb moment. Mm. So it was going to take us two years to put together the vehicle mm. to do this. And, and we had to say, well, are you able to securitize $4 billion worth of aircraft or $4.5 billion worth of aircraft in one go at one time? And Morgan Stanley said, yes. And they put their money where their mouth was in terms of providing advice to mm. that effect. Then we just turned the whole company around to putting in place, you know, obviously you have to novate every single aircraft, mm-hmm. every single lease yeah. into a SPV. Yeah. The size of the transaction at $4.6 billion in terms of the number of bonds being issued was exceeded the US Federal Reserve threshold for money transfer. Mm-hmm. So we had to get special permission from the Fed. But in, in April 1996, we closed so-called Aeroplanes Group Transaction, which is a big ABS asset-backed securitization transaction, which refinanced all of our debt, all of it, in one go, one transaction. It still is the largest aircraft securitization transaction ever done. Really? Yeah. So that gave us the money to pay off the secured lenders and the unsecured lenders. Okay. And suddenly we were now, instead of looking at running out of money in a year or 18 mm-hmm. months' time, you could look at as far as you wanted and as long as the operational cash flows of the business continued, there was no horizon event mm. that was going to cause you a problem. Mm. So now you could get, turn your attention to dealing with the multiple things that were problematic within the business. Mm. You know, over-complexity here, tax-based transactions there. We were a very complex, mm. global, multinational. So can I ask you at this time, where was Tony during okay, this time? Because Part of the deal with Tony was in the, when the restructuring closed in 1993, effectively, he had to exit the company. Okay. That was a condition of okay. the lender's support. A hard price for that man to pay, Yes, but he did it very gracefully. He realized that, that was an essential ingredient, Yeah, um, did everything to protect his interests, but nothing that hindered the company's mm. efforts. He got sued by um, a one of our later shareholders who who alleged in court that he had misled them about their investment. And they sued him and it went to court, but it was settled on the courthouse steps and Tony won. Uh, but he handled the whole thing with great dignity, which was his way of doing mm. things. You know, he didn't like it, but he, he stayed connected. And um, he was easy enough to deal with, uh, mm. humanly, one-on-one. Mm. You mm. knew he was struggling with it. Yeah. And he just had to go about it the yeah. right way. But he, he was a big boy. Well, that's, that's, that's good to know because like, this is a very forceful man who was in effectively 100% control for a long time and everything being done his way in the culture. I imagine the, the culture was demonstrably different now than it was Prior to the yeah, no, like you know, um, everyone talks about the famous Monday morning meetings, mm. and um, and they were famous, and really, like thinking about it now, thirty years later, actually, how do you get a company with you know a global business based in the west of Ireland to prioritize what needs to be prioritized, get everybody behind mm. the tasks that need to get done, whether they're a lawyer, a marketing guy, mm. a finance guy, and Tony's way of doing that was to have a Monday morning meeting. Mm. It started at 8.30. You didn't dare show up late. Everyone was in their seats. Mm. It, it, there was, it only went a certain way down the company. 
it was the main meeting. It was run strictly on a what is the most important task for this okay. week basis. And then it's worked its way down into the more general ongoing objectives mm. and priorities in the company. But it started off, we have five aeroplanes coming back from this customer that we haven't placed. Where are we going to place those aircraft? Okay. So it was very intense. Was it a case of grown men shaking in their boots oh, under like, the table? <clears throat> again, when I, when I became the head of the leasing division or the, mm. the number two in the, the head of operations in the mm. leasing division, I found myself every Monday morning, you know, behind the curve. And I would have called every important client that I knew was on the list on Friday to find out what was going on, what was happening. But on Monday morning, Tony knew more on Monday morning than I did. Yeah. And I quickly worked out by calling all these people, well, how did Tony find out more than I did? And I'd spoken to everybody on Friday. Mm. Tony spoke to them all on Saturday and Sunday. And so I learned that I had, one of the things I had to do was to, I'd call the most senior person I knew in every one of these problem airlines. I'd get mm. the latest update. I'd tell him that his boss was going to get a phone call from Tony Ryan, you know, probably the next day. And we'd better be on the same wavelength, yeah. otherwise it's not going to get done. And so yeah. on Monday morning, I was now in the same position as Tony was. But I, I, had, okay. to, I had to do that over the weekend to make sure I was abreast of current developments. I'm guessing some of your colleagues weren't quite as good as you. Well, I, that one. They probably didn't learn quick enough because <laughs> they might be dealing with just one customer and yeah. then they were in a different country. I was predominantly in Ireland and most of my connections with my customers was down the phone. So if you're a marketing guy and you're, you know, you're, one week you're dealing in Brazil because that's where the opportunity is, the next week you might be in Africa. Okay. It's a bit more difficult to make that connection. Sure. But... That's what Tony wanted you to. He wanted you to be abreast of the latest yeah. developments. So Tony's name has come up a lot, Paddy, at this stage. Maybe it's a good time to just ask you what kind of a guy he was. Tell us your memory of him. I did not have a great personal relationship with Tony. My relationship with Tony was entirely professional. Yeah. I wasn't his friend. Yeah. I was his employee. And so he wanted me to do my job and I needed his support to get things done regularly. Mm. And so that interaction was was fine. But he he was you know, very charismatic man. He had personal connections with the CEOs of half the world's airlines. Mm. He was a wealthy man, you know, a big figure in London and Dublin social circles, you know, went out with, you know, the great and the good. And he was not a guy that you'd challenge easily. He wasn't always perfect. But the trick with Tony was never to challenge him to his face in front of third parties. Okay. You had to raise the issue in a way that didn't challenge him. And if he thought your ideas were better than his, he'd turn that corner in a nanosecond mm. and back you up 100%. But you didn't, you didn't want to put him okay. on a pedestal saying, okay. you're wrong and I'm right. It was very much a way of dealing with charismatic, capable individuals yeah. who know they're hearing bullshit when they're getting bullshit yes. and who know their idea is not as good as your idea when okay. they hear that as well. Okay. It's, good to, it's interesting to hear that, yeah. that he, was, you know, he wasn't so set on his own views that he couldn't change. No, like, you know, I remember once we, we went to Boeing again, I think it, it's, it always seems to happen around either Good Friday or St. Patrick's Day. We went to Boeing to renegotiate our $13 billion worth of contracts. So Tony had tasked me with the job of coming up with the proposal. It meant they didn't have to put their hand in the pocket, but we didn't have to find new capital. And so we're flying from London to Seattle. I coincidentally discovered he was on the same plane. The plan was to meet the next morning, which is a day before the meeting with Boeing. And um, Boeing's trick, by the way, was always to have the meetings at four o'clock in the afternoon, because that was midnight Irish time, and they would get us when we were tired. Mm -hmm. And Tony, of course, was tuned into this completely. He mm -hmm. knew 
That's what they were doing. So he'd agree to the meeting at four o'clock in the afternoon and then he'd get sick at three o'clock and have to postpone the meeting till the following morning at 8 a.m., okay. which suited us much better. So he'd do that. But, and I knew that was coming. That's why I knew I had a day in, in Seattle to talk to him about it. But on the plane, realized I was on the same plane. I'm in business class. He's in first class. He pays the stewardess to move people around within first class so I can sit beside him. There's one spare seat. And we basically went across the Atlantic strategizing, thinking, all the rest. And the insights he gave me into how to deal with Boeing, don't be afraid to ask. And ask for 105%, knowing they're going to pull you back to 100%. Mm. But don't be afraid to ask. So we tweaked the proposal as we went mm. across the Atlantic and across the North America. Sorry, it sounds like... Um uh, Michael O'Leary might have learned a little bit from him as well. well I'd, I'd say Michael O'Leary learned a lot from him. And yeah. I'm sure Tony learned lots from Michael O'Leary yeah. too. You know? So he was an interesting guy, yeah. very capable, very generous, helped people that needed helping. Nothing ever rose above the surface. When Tony helped you or helped somebody, it was never in the paper. Hmm. It was always done, you know, helped people who's, who were widowed unexpectedly, helped people who needed major surgery, you know, none of the Brian Lenehan type mm. stuff that got yeah, all yeah. over the papers. He'd do it all. The money would be paid to the Mayo Clinic. There'd be no question about anything. You'd get the best possible treatment. Looked after one guy who needed a heart transplant. All these kind of things mm. never, never appeared. Very generous. I think the, the best compliment we could pay to the late Tony is we're still talking about him. Absolutely. Uh, several years later. Well, we can send it to Declan and, and get the thumbs up. So we're going to go to the last leg now of the GPA. But just before we go on to the last... Um, piece of the restructuring story. You did come across Jack Welch in your, um, the, the famous or infamous Jack Welch from GE during your, your transaction or deal with them. Another very strong, forceful character. What was your impression of him? Well, there was two forceful characters. Like, first of all, GE was an outstanding company. Probably mm. still is an outstanding mm. company. They, they obviously did lots of things wrong in more recent years, but they, they were very well led and they had a great, like the one thing that people don't realize about GE is that it wasn't being eaten by the bear, the 500-pound gorilla. It was you're being eaten by 5,000 piranha fish because they were so detailed and so comprehensive in their an analysis of your business and what they mm. could do and what they needed to do. They basically drilled down every little bit of the puzzle. So incredibly well-led and incredibly well-run. And so to my mind, there's really three people. There's obviously Jack Welch, who was the ultimate decision maker. He ran the main company. There was Gary Wendt, who was the CEO of GE Capital. And then there was a, a guy called Henry Hupshman and Norm Liu. Henry, unfortunately, died of, of cancer. But his number two, Norm Liu, ultimately succeeded to be the chairman and CEO of GCAS. And so I was dealing with Norm on a day-to-day -day basis. He was my interface mm. in the GE discussions. Happy memories of that. Yeah, happy memories. And I'm, I'm now still working with Norm, who's just become the CEO of Nordic Aviation Capital, okay. brought back in to help restructure that business. So I've been dealing with Norm, and I still love dealing with Norm. Yeah. Norm's kind of guy's brain is so good. He's finished the sentence. He ha finished the sentence in the middle, and you have to be able to finish the sentence off, you know, from your understanding of what it is he's okay. trying to say. Okay. But anyway, Jack Welch, they had an option to buy the company effectively for 60 million, 60 cents per share. So... Part of the restructuring was how do we, you know, ultimately we've got this noose around our neck. It's constraining what we're going to do with the company. And GE has five or three or four more years to decide whether to exercise the option. So we had to trigger a discussion about the option ahead of its exercise date. And we knew because every year this happened, they analyzed the option and they sent a report back to HQ. And Norm told me what the report said. 
in, in very broad terms, not, nothing that mm-hmm. was, you know, damaging right. the relationship. Mm-hmm. And so we approached Gary Went and said, you know, we, we'd like to buy back the option and we're going to pay you 30 million for the option. So was the option, how, what was The this? option was for a 60, they could buy the company how many, for 60 million dollars. For what period of time? Up to 1998, okay. October 1998. And so we said we'd buy the option back, we'd pay you 30 million now and you'll get a 19.99% minority stake. So it won't be 100% stake. And then we told him why that made sense for him. Because the problem about GE, a AAA rated company going into GPA was every bit of our debt, because we were, there was a risk of our default, every bit of our debt was at a high margin and the debt price was 80 cents in the dollar. Mm-hmm. The minute GE showed up, everything went to 100 cents mm-hmm. in the dollar and everyone expected to get paid exactly on schedule. So them not owning us okay. gave us an opportunity to buy back the debt at a cheaper price in the market. Legitimately, that's just the way them... So we were reducing our risk using our cash okay. flow. So they were getting it in their equity holding. And so, this so we basically persuaded him that if he bought back the option and gave you 30 million cash, we then transferred a whole bunch of aircraft that we had still commitments to purchase, which they wanted yeah. to them. And we get, left them with a 19.99% minority stakehold in the company. And he then went to a meeting with Jack Welch where he asked us, you know, if you were in my position, would you exercise the option? And I said, yes, I would. And I explained why I would exercise Mm -hmm. the option. But I said, there's a couple of downsides to that. And here are the five downsides. And I'm certain those five downsides were in the paper that had been presented to him the day before by his team. And so I said, my evaluation is we'll be able to deal with the downsides or you will be. But actually, I think you'd be better off if you didn't have to deal with the downsides and you made the option at 20% more valuable. And he got it and won. And so in principle, we had a deal when we walked out of his office. We just had to do the due diligence and all the other good stuff. Did they haggle on the the price? No, there was a bit of haggling. Yeah, Not a whole lot. They haggled much more about the name. They wanted GPA, you know, the name of GPA to be buried under so much, you know, stuff that GCAS became the the dominant name. Up to that point, GPA was still a dominant name in the industry, hence becoming known as AirFi, which was a compromise name. And that's when we knew in order to buy back the option and to recapitalize the company and get rid of the shareholders, get rid is the wrong word, give the shareholders who wanted to exit an exit mechanism, but also leave the company with strong enough capital to go forward. We approached David Bondeman in uh, Texas Pacific Group. I dealt with him in two previous airline restructurings, America, West and Continental, Mm -hmm. when we were the biggest creditor to those airlines. And we worked with them as a private equity firm restructuring those airlines out of bankruptcy, really to the benefit of both parties. We got great deals and they, you know, bought in and, and mm. got a controlling stake in America West and in Continental. And so I encountered him and dealt with him. And um, so we approached him and said, listen, we probably don't need your money, but having you as the shareholder takes out the exiting shareholders will give the market the right signal about our restructuring efforts. Mm. And so he agreed to buy-in. He wanted 80% of the company, wanted control. He didn't agree with the price. We, we Let's mm. say we wanted, you know, $100 a share. He paid us $75 a share, but it just gave us enough. Mm. We shrunk the amount of shares we sold him um, to compensate in part for, you know, the price differential. And was, he became the shareholder. Was that your first encounter with David Bonderman? No, I'd met him before with uh, America West and with okay. Continental okay, sorry. previous sorry. airline yeah. restructurings. But again, you know, he was big picture, yeah. had a team of great people, analyzed the company to death, realized where the issues were, helped us sort them out. And then two years later, uh, Devis Air Finance showed up clearly wanting to 
double or triple the size of their portfolio and they offered us, we brought David Bonnerman in for, I think, let's say a dollar twenty-five a share. And we sold to Devis Herfordance something in the order of five and a half dollars per share. So he got five times his money back mm. within two years. Mm. He was very happy. It's hardly a coincidence that he, he resurfaced later on to be chairman of Ryanair for many, many no, years. I think Tony saw what he did with yeah. the GPA and its restructuring. Yeah. And when it came time for, you know, again, yeah. Ryanair, great airline, just needed third-party validation sure. of that fact. And Bonderman and yeah. Tech Specific Amazing. Group provided that. And hence his investment in Ryanair. And I think he's he's been there as chairman, you know, until relatively recently. And good guy, you know, in his 70s, very interesting man, have real attention to detail. That's a great mm. team behind him in Texas yeah. Pacific Group. So, interesting time. Okay. I just wanted to ask you, Ireland has a unique position in the aircraft leasing business uh, globally. It's quite amazing. And it, clearly it all stems from, from, from the Tony Ryan GPA thing. Just some of the other names and companies that have sprung up in recent years, what ones come to mind for you? Well, like, you know, the, whenever GPA got into trouble and GCAS arrived along, mm. uh, GCAS took over let's say, 90% of the people that were involved in leasing, placing, managing aircraft on mm. lease. And about 10 or 15% of those did not go to GCAS. They left the company. Mike Dolan formed Pembroke Capital, yep. Donald Slattery. Uh, I think it was called IAMG initially. At then the it became time, yeah. Lombard Capital. Then it was bought by RBS. Mm. Now it's effectively run by Peter Barrett, Barrett. who was one of his, um, lieutenants. One of his lieutenants, yeah. also a GPA employee. And now it's, you know, SMBC Aviation Capital. Yeah. Absolutely enormous, you know, $30 billion, $25, $30 billion company run by effectively an ex-GPA team with all of the new graduates from different businesses joining Mm. in. And then, of course, um, Donald resurrected himself having effectively exited RBS Aviation Capital, which became SMBC, and founded Avalon from scratch. Yeah. And again, interesting connection with G. Dennis Naden, who was Gary Wentz number two, was the chairman of Avalon in the early days when it was private equity financed. Yeah. And don't let a strategy buy airplanes, big numbers at the down part of the market, finance them as the market begins to lift with a combination of debt and equity, ultimately with the objective of becoming investment grade and be able to refinance yourself in the US capital markets. Mm. And he had a program, a 10-year vision, and basically delivered 100% upon it over those 10 mm. years to the point where Avalon is now probably number three. Mm. It's certainly in the top five. And there's always an argument as to mm. who's not in the top five, but mm. Avalon is definitely up there. Mm. And Donald, who has now stood aside and left Andy Cronin, an engineer who became CFO, who became CEO, outstanding, you know, really outstanding mm. individual, no connection with GPA. Okay. But obviously, um, Donald went with John Higgins and mm. Tom Ash, a whole yep. pile of guys yep. from from uh, a GPA. Great, great success story. As is SMBC. I suppose Donal is the sort of ultimate salesman who could sell, mm. you know, a fridge to an Eskimo. Yeah. But Donal is also like Tony. He has this ability to look way beyond his own mm. area of expertise mm. and, and see things that other people don't see. See opportunities, see yeah. threats. He has a much broader vision. Yeah. Peter, who's kind of known in the industry a little bit as the professor, is kind of the cerebral, yes. you know, details-oriented, do everything absolutely mm. spot on, very organized. The company is is really well put together. Mm. And I think that fits the Japanese yes. culture 100%. Yeah. And then there's, you know, there's a whole pile of other companies. Freddie Brown in yeah, Ergo, great entrepreneurial, very much operating at the margins, but but still mainstream, but really able to do deals at the margins because there's a whole bunch of clever people working yeah. with Freddie in, in that business. 
And there's, you know... Colin Barrington. Colin Barrington, who did yeah. fly leasing, worked yeah. with uh, Babcock and Brown, yeah. aviation manager, BBAM, great, another great success story. Colin, who was my original boss when yeah. I joined back, way back in 1983, he's just retired having sold fly leasing, which was their mm-hmm. public vehicle, to Carlisle Aircraft Management. Yeah. I think one thing that people don't realise about Ireland and its location, so Tony realised very early on that in order to lease aircraft around the world, we had to have a global double tax treaty network. And so with a guy called Jerry McAvoy, a partner in KPMG, and his successor, Pat O'Brien, they went about encouraging the Department of Foreign Affairs and Finance to enter into double tax treaties with the most possible, I think we have, mm. you know, 80 or something of that order. It's 80. a huge positive for Ireland now. Yeah. And, and when we were a poor 4 million people perched on the edge of Europe, you know, the poorest member of the EU, that was relatively straightforward because we weren't seen as competing with the big yeah. titans of finance yeah. in England or in France or in North America. Yeah. So we have this incredible network of double tax treaties. And around that also grew up a very expert group of lawyers, accountants, tax advisors, who together put together what I would call almost the perfect infrastructure, the set of laws, set of tax arrangements, set of financing constructs, all the things that go into making Ireland an extremely efficient, capital-friendly place to Dude. own and lease your aircraft yes. from. And so, to a great extent, I think the, real, the missing bit in all of this is, you know, while Donal and Peter Barrett and all these guys have really driven the business, at the same time, in the background, the KPMGs, the Price Waterhouses, mm. particularly probably KPMG is the leading company mm. in, in this area. And I should, by the way, say I was a former employee of KPMG. Yeah, as you we, know. Got, we noticed that so, in the plug. <laughs> except the plug. What we have that no other jurisdiction has is mm. that infrastructure. So we've had Hong Kong, you know, 10 years ago, Hong Kong decided they were going to become the next Ireland and they were going to do it in Asia. And between then and now, Hong Kong has evaporated. Mm. All the emigrants have left that Chinese have taken over Hong Kong. And so the legal constructs that necessary and the professional backups necessary are no longer there. Mm. And the tax regime that they have is not as good as the tax regime that we have. Now, Singapore has been successful at sort of nibbling away at, at our exclusive global leadership position. But Singapore is a very flexible, mm. small jurisdiction, realizing the importance of financial mm. services. But we have in Ireland a unique set of infrastructure that facilitates mm. this. Every leasing company in the world has an Irish subsidiary mm. for a reason. And half of all the leased aircraft are leased through Ireland, Ireland because that's how big we are in that business. And it's all because of the guys who founded the industry, mm. all the guys who took over that wonderful leadership from Tony and the people in the mm. professional businesses, the McCann Fitzgeralds, the yes. Good Bodies, the KPMGs, the Price Waterhouses, who have maintained that infrastructure, the expertise available in Dublin. Whenever I was financing airplanes back in the 1980s, you had to go to London, law firm, mm. to get expertise. London it's is... in Dublin now. It's all in Dublin. You, you had to sometimes go to New York. It's still in New York because they're doing financing for everything. But they'll tell you, they have mm. side offices here in Dublin for aviation. Mm. And the expertise is available on Stevens mm. Green, yeah. on Pembroke Street, in the IFSC, wherever you go. Yeah. It's here. So that is... The legacy that Tony Ryan yeah. is today. Paddy, I can't think of a better, I was going to talk about more things. I was going to talk about sustainability and the aviation industry, but I think we've, we've uh, had a great chat here and it's been exhilarating and educational. And I've enjoyed every minute of it. And just to thank you for, for taking the time. And My pleasure. I know you're retiring 
in a relatively short time from your UCD uh, role. So best of luck with that, uh, Thank whatever you. You, you get up to. I'd be glad. Um, it's a wonderful thing to come back and teach students, people who are starting their careers, hearing from some old codger like me, trying to explain what happened in my days. It's an interesting story. And it's I want them story. in their twilight years to come back and say aviation was great for them too. Perfect note to finish on. Thank okay. you very much, buddy. No problem.